Hello, I'm Ira Kirschenbaum. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal for Orthopedic Experience and Innovation, otherwise known as Joey. We have a special evening tonight. Um, if I'm pausing, I'm just letting some more people in. This is a seminar essentially speaking about what's next, uh, what to expect next, how to prepare yourself for what's next, whether you're a medical student, a resident, a fellow, or even a young attending. Um, which uh, many of us work with. We have uh, the honor of having um, a rock star group of, um, of experienced uh, surgeons, um, uh, Dr. William Levine, Dr. Joseph Abood, Dr. Will Barsoom, Dr. Matt Barber, Dr. Lisa Canada, Dr. Kevin Plancher, um, and a few other regulars. I, I always have to call out Charles Orth and uh, Marty Nichols and a few other people. More people are, are coming in. But I'm going to start this off. And I, I think I'm going to um, pass the first question over to Dr. Levine since he came on first. Um, what, what general life skills do you recommend for all orthopedic surgeons to develop through all their training years? And that's a big question, but, you know. Well, I, th I think there's three things that I tell students who are doing sub eyes. You know, people always ask Ira, like, what are you looking for in your sub eyes? And I say, well, you know what? It's, it's actually the things that I look for in everybody that I hire. And it's pride, it's professionalism, and it's interpersonal skills. And if you add those three up and you can, and you can uh, navigate those three, then you have a pretty good chance of, of putting yourself in good position for every interaction that you have with patients, with the, uh, the hospital support staff, with department staff, uh, and wherever you happen to be. So that's, those are my kind of three things that I tell everybody that I look for and that they should focus on. Yeah. Uh, anyone else want to chip in here before I call on people? Resilience, but Bill almost had an alliteration. I don't know why he blew it on the third. <laughs> Doctor, well, yeah. What, what you say? You, you you come from the Cleveland Clinic, and now you're sure. innovation officer. Um, you see, a, you see a lot of young people. Yeah, you know, for me, we we all hear about the three A's in in medicine, right? Um, ability, affability, and availability. And uh, I really think that, that that's kind of good advice for life. You've got to be good at what you do. So, you know, if you're going into a surgical field, making sure that you come out being the best trained surgeon that you can be. I remember meeting with one of my mentors, uh, Les Borden, who was the head of joint replacements at the Cleveland Clinic when I was a resident and sitting down with him and telling him I wanted to be an adult reconstructive surgeon uh, and asking his advice about fellowships. And he said, uh, your fellowship should be the place where you go from being a really, really good orthopedic surgeon to being an excellent orthopedic surgeon. It's all about that surgery. So that was the ability part. Um, affability, being nice to people. You'll, you'll see pretty quickly as you go into practice, people will be calling you, especially, you know, if you're the kind of the uh, uh, first person on the totem pole there. Uh, that gets that phone call it might be at five o'clock on a Friday evening, you know, um, always say yes. You know, there's a, there's a human being on the other end of that call that needs your help. 
um, and availability, right? I mean, being available for folks, being nice to folks, that makes a really big difference for being successful in practice. And, you know, many times the people that build the biggest practices initially aren't necessarily the people that you might say are technically the most gifted surgeons, but they are definitely the people that make that combination of A's the most successful. Yeah. Any, any comments, uh, Lisa, maybe a few comments on this. I love uh, what everyone's saying, you know, and the three A's are definitely always important, but I also think uh, it's important to be uh, exceptionally affable, but really not over the top. Some people really try too hard, uh, especially when they're starting. Uh, and that includes in residency in fellowship and in your job. Don't try too hard, just be your good self. And learning people's names is really important. Uh, I think that's a very important no matter where you are and what you do. And you really want to integrate. You know, the three A's help you integrate into whatever practice setting you are. So uh, that's, you know, really important take home point from combining what Bill said and what uh, and well said, you know, for us to do. Yeah. Joe, Joe, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, all very important points. And um, I was just writing down um, Bill's points because they're really good. Um, and everyone's points were really good. Um, but I really liked how succinct his were. Um, you know, I think um, we're so used to succeeding when we come in from medical school uh, as residents that uh, I think humility is very important. Um, learning that you have to work in teams because a lot of times in school, whether it be in college or medical school, you have something to digest, you study it, you take a test. It's kind of just you, you're the, the same, the one person and you're not working with a collective group of people, whether that be your residency class, OR team, office team. Um, and, um, you know, try to, you know, the psychology of, of teams and building a residency uh, I think are, are obviously very similar to what Bill was saying as far as building a good department. But um, we all know of, of situations where people are not necessarily very good residents, but exceptional attendings because they don't work well in teams or didn't work well in teams. I think those people are becoming less and less uh, favorable uh, as far as being attendings anyway. But I think that, you know, having diversity of thought is very important in your group mm -hmm. to, to make sure you have um, the ability and the, um, the safety to feel like you can speak uh, among your peers and in your residency and, and to not be outspoken, but to, to definitely speak your mind openly. Yeah, Kevin, what do you think? So once again, just to reiterate, um, it, I think everyone is on target, but I'm learning that some of the skill set that came naturally for some of us that are sitting here is different. And the pressures that are there um, are different. And so I would say coming from the signage, well knows of being a servant leader in the Cleveland Clinic is hard sometimes for some of the younger people to understand. And I think Putting yourself in the patient's shoes always is important because the stress is very high now. And until you're a patient, and I've had the misfortune many times, it teaches you a great lesson of 
as Joe said, who's in the team, who you really need. And um, therefore, I think you become a better listener. So I would add learning how to listen because the patient will tell you every day what needs to be done. And then remembering to when you come home, wherever home is, to try to leave it at work and not bring it at home so that you still have that other part of your life. Matt, you have a few things to say from, uh, I work in the Deep South, you work in the Deep South. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, we're right next to each other there. Uh, yeah, I think the points everybody's made have been been great, and they've really touched on a lot of different things. You ask for, for life skills. Um, I, I think trying to have some balance in your life, um, you know, have a home life that's stable, whatever that looks like for you, uh, being uh, reasonably physically healthy, uh, that gets hard during training. Um, taking care of yourself in those regards in terms of, uh, and having somebody I think during that training process and at the end of the day uh, that really you trust and it can speak to you and will kick you the real deal uh, no matter what happens. And that a lot of times is a spouse, but it can be a trusted uh, practice partner. Um, you know, I've got a handful of people around the country that I can can text questions to that are always going to be there and give me give me sound advice because you you can you can go out and you can hear a lot of things and you can hear bad stuff about yourself or get your ego uh, pumped up, depending on who you're willing to listen to. So I would keep those in balance. And the other things that have been spoken about, I think the the pride and the professionalism and how you deal with people are all super important. And, you know, the three A's are classic. And for better or worse, your, your affability uh, is the most important if you're talking about practice building. Uh, your competence is presumed. We're our skill, unfortunately, in a lot of respects, is seen as a commodity at this point. And so that part is just assumed by employers, by patients, by a lot of people to be the same. Uh, and so there are some, some people that are, you know, not as great technically and some people, quite frankly, that are bad technically that have built monster practices on really great personality and, and affability. So um combining all of those is is important but if you're trying to grow it you got to you got to be good to people and it's like will said you you take the call at 5 p.m on friday you'd be available and you'd be nice to people that's great i i just want to add a comment that uh when i did my fellowship uh it was with dick rothman and rothman said to me almost on the first or second day every day you come into the office do something better do one thing better, a better note, a better incision, a better speak to someone a little better. Every day, after a few years, you're going to be that much of a, of a better person. And I, and I thought that, that that was great advice because it keeps, keeps you on your mind like, today I'm going to do this. Today I'm going to do that, okay? And, um, and I think that works out pr pretty well. Again, if anyone has any questions, um, so I'm adding some more residents here. Um, if anyone has any questions, put them in the chat. Um, and um, so I'm going to go on. Um, um, I'm going to flip to the fourth question. What, what are the two 
to three things you absolutely need to consider in your first job hunt. You know, you know what are, what are the first two th- couple of things? You know, you, you're looking for a job. I I've interviewed quite a lot of people because um, you know we're we're in the shadow of some big institutions. One of them in Washington Heights, and <laughs> and uh, you know we uh, we have to interview about five people sometimes just to get get a half a person and. Um, but what are the things you'll look at um, if, if you want to consider your, in your, in your job? If I'm talking about not the point of the employer, but the employee, from the point of the job seeker. And I'd like to start this uh, with, well, um, because I know you work with a lot of practices now. Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, I think is cultural compatibility. And that sounds like a cliche term. But you have to, I think, make sure that your goals and your um, life philosophy is consistent with that of the practice. So let let me be more specific. Um, If in your first interview, it's clear that what somebody's looking for is just a high volume churn and burn doc that's just going to come and crank out cases, and that's not what you want to be, that's not the right practice for you. So, you know, just making sure that what you want is culturally aligned with the practice is a big, big deal. The second thing is your partners. Um, And and I I would tell you that one and two probably go hand in hand to some degree. But again, making sure that you're aligned with your partners from a personality perspective Uh, and and also from a respect perspective. If you're coming out as a spine surgeon, uh, and uh, maybe you, you're confident, but not super confident. Having a senior spine surgeon in that practice that is ready and willing to step in and scrub tough cases with you and go through cases with you, that's a big deal. Uh, very different than joining a practice where maybe you're the only spine surgeon and you're not quite you know, uh, ready in your own mind. Uh, and the same holds true for the opposite, right? If you're super independently minded and you are really ready to go and, and very, very confident uh, and uh, you want to go out there and, and light the world up, great. I mean, then, you know, being kind of the only spine surgeon in that practice may be a great way to build your practice more quickly. So I think, you know, that alignment and that, that cultural alignment is, is extremely important. Great. Uh, some other comments from the faculty? Um... I hate to be a cynic, but probably the first one is how to get out of the job. But, you know, um, you know, more important than a lot of the things that people look at money and location, you know, how do you get out of the job? I think, um, you know, uh, we all approach things different ways. I, I, you know, when I did it, I went kind of through a little Excel spreadsheet of of things that were important to me. And um, that wasn't on there, actually, to be honest, I kind of learned that the hard way in my first job. Um, But a lot of the other ones, well uh, mentioned are very important, but also your family, because I think as a resident, uh, you may have a, a spouse or maybe even a young family, but you start to realize how much, at least for a lot of us, we need our family around to, to, to for support and for guidance and, and being able to have uh, confidants and, and, and help with things. So that's, that's also important. Uh, so I think a lot of times people look at the, the remuneration immediately, but that's probably the last thing I, I would I would recommend people look at. Yeah, um, Ira. Yeah, Bill. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, this is probably the most commonly asked question uh, about uh, from all mentees. And we've talked to lots of people of, uh, about finding your first job. The first thing I tell people is related to Joe's. It's a little less negative, but it's the, it's a corollary. And that is 70 percent of all orthopedic surgeons leave their first job within the first five years, 50 percent wow. within the first two years. So if you look at that, you can either say, boy, that's the most depressing thing I ever heard. Or you say, you know what? This has taken away all of the stress of me feeling I have to find utopia. The likelihood of finding utopia is not very high. And the reason for that is that, as I tell people all the time, finding your first job is very situational. You might want an academic job, but there isn't an academic job in the geographic area that you're looking for or vice versa. So first of all, take the pressure off. Second of all, you take the best job in the best area that suits you and your family, and you get your boards under your belt, and then you move on if, if that's what happens. And, and what Joe said is so, the other part of this that's so important is that I, I make sure that I sit down with the partner and meaning the person's partner and say, Licka, this is not like hypothetical, like we're moving to Butte, Montana because they're paying me 1.5 million in the first, five, first three years. This is you're opening the envelope and we're moving to Butte, Montana. And if that's not where your partner wants to be, they could pay you $5 billion and you will be a very unhappy uh, person. So I, I think you have to be very honest with your partner and make sure because they've often been the ones who have been sacrificing for the five years of residency plus a year of fellowship. And there it's like, no, I'm done. We need to go to a place that is mutually beneficial. Sarah? Yeah, Kevin. So... <laughs> I'd like to build on what Bill says that it's a fact that we as orthopedic surgeons have no clue how to pick a job when 50% change. That means our EQ sucks. So the point is that you really need your significant other partner or spouse to help in the process because I find it unlike what Bill says, terrible that you have to uproot your life at 50% of us. And so thank God there are other jobs and people work out great. But I think it's important that I don't know that we see what we want. So my adage is you need to ask everything. We're not trained as physicians and we get embarrassed to ask certain questions. And we should not hold back in a polite fashion to ask. Uh, it may be, I need every third Saturday off, whatever it is. Well, we can't do that. Or it may be, whatever it is, you should be able to have an open conversation and ask at the managing partner. Any business person will tell you, they go in and they ask the questions. I think Chuck Bush Joseph said it best. I'm not offering the new partner anything. If they ask for it and it's reasonable, I'll give it to them. And so I'm talking about any job you gotta ask because they're not gonna volunteer anything. It doesn't work that way. This is business, there's no emotion. It's a contract that you put away and hopefully you find the right place. But I would encourage the young people to say, it's okay to ask what the rules and the culture, as others have said, because it is about the culture, uh, makes it successful that you have fun and you're excited to wake up and go to work. Other comments from anyone? I can. I'll move on to 
the, the one of the last question I did, how do you recommend dealing with the known stresses of residency? All right, the known stress or the unknown unknowns <laughs> um, to, to, to quote Rumsfeld. Um, you know, residency has quite a number of stresses, not the least of which applying for fellowships, but also just the hours and sometimes a toxic environment, sometimes not. Um, Maybe I'll start with with, uh, with Lisa, possibly. Yeah, great question. Uh, there's known and unknown stressors and certain things, uh, what you have to realize, what can you be prepared for and what are you not prepared for? One thing we know that we, you know, you're prepared for your cases, you're prepared for clinic, you're prepared for conferences. By being prepared, then you have less stress on you because you aren't worrying like I didn't, you know, it's like going into a case knowing you're going to be asked questions and you didn't prepare for it. There's nothing more than increasing the stresses on that. And that might cause a whole cascade of events, meaning you might not be answer the questions that the patient's asking. You might not be nice when you leave the house the morning, that morning to your spouse or partner, uh, or even your dog. You might just not be nice because you aren't prepared. So the first thing is I uh, is to handle the stressors is to be prepared uh, and learn how to prepare by using others in uh, the residency and also in your network. So being uh, being prepared helps but more importantly is things don't always go right. So it's how you handle the things that go wrong in residency uh, that really determines your pathway for success in the future. So the, when things go wrong, it's important to keep everything in context. Uh, and you know, if there are mistakes made, you own up. If the environment is bad, uh, you know, what can you control? Can you make someone's day better to perhaps, you know, a little bit start chipping away at the uh, chipping away at the problem? Uh, it's important to know who you can trust and who you can't trust, because if you try uh, and uh, dump things or discuss things with the wrong person, that can lead to a bad problem. So I always say it's good to, you know, it's important to do in dealing with the stresses, uh, also build a team uh, and be, build a team around you, a team that will help you with different aspects. That can be your home life, that could be your uh, preparedness for surgery, that could be taking care of patients. So build a team that can help you because uh, that also will help take the stresses uh, off a of residency. And really it starts on day one. You have to enlist your allies on day one uh, and you also have to give something to them, give back in uh, your relationships. So uh, it's really important. And one thing I always say with residents too, they really uh, think about their job versus their career. You don't want to think about it's just a residency, but it's actually the building block for the rest of your career. So uh, by succeeding in the small steps of residency uh, and building from that, then you really are building towards a successful career. Um, Joe, you've seen your share of residence. Yeah, I, I think that I wish someone had told me how frequent failure would happen as a resident. And 
Well, you need to sort of uh, reflect on it, uh, take it in, write notes for the next time. Uh, try not to beat yourself up too much. I think sometimes we um, are really hard on ourselves um, and that can lead us to now burnout and, and, and even depression as, as, as residents and attendings. Um, and, you know, you have to find your outlet, whether it's rock climbing or whatever. For me, it was um, hanging out with friends that were not in medicine when I had free time. So I didn't have to talk about medicine so I could hear about their lives and, and just have different conversations. So those were ways I tried to cope. But, you know, this is great to, to hear. Uh, and I think everyone, uh, you know, that's been been talking has been through all of this and, and understands this. I wish I had a, a forum like this when I was a resident, because honestly, I really had, in, in retrospect, no idea what I was getting myself into. And uh, as you went through it, you're just kind of like, you know, that true fire hose just just blowing water at you. And you're like, I have no idea how to deal with this. And, and, you know, in the middle of the night, taking calls sometimes walking around the hospital, thinking to yourself, this night will end. And just repeating that to myself was, was a coping mechanism because sometimes you were just very, very exhausted and just, uh, you know, wanted to just have some of the calls stopping. Bill, a lot of residents go through Columbia, of course. And, um, you know, how do they, how do they deal with the known? What is your recommendation for dealing with the known stresses? Well, you know, I, I can guarantee you that the words wellness and mental health were never uttered in the five years that I was a resident and the years that I was a fellow. So um, thank goodness we're in a different era. Um, we have a speed dial, um, you know, the there's a psychiatrist at Columbia who only takes care of residents, fellows, and faculty. And she's on speed dial and all of us have her number. I call her all the time. If there's a, a resident, a fellow, a faculty member in need, called her twice last week. Wow. Um, she's great. Uh, she's really um, approachable, obviously confidential and all that stuff. So we talk about it all the time. We have, you know, it, it's gotta be part of the culture, Ira. It's gotta be okay. It can't be the old, you know, sign of weakness if you're calling the attending um, or calling the senior resident. So I think the more that we make it just part of the culture, uh, that's how our approach has been. And what that does is if a resident sees another resident who's struggling, just like concussions now are now part of our culture. And you can, right. you know, one of the players says, hey, doc, you know, that 42 is not right. It's the exact same concept. We've made it part of the norm, not part of the abnormal. And I think that's the goal. That's superb. Any other comments on, on that issue? Hey, Ira, this is Charles. A, a couple yeah, things. Oh, sure. You know, as far as our, our residency and stuff, we have a mentor program with all the other residencies that are associated with us. So in that form of residents, they can talk amongst themselves and get ideas from other programs, whether it's internal medicine, general surgery, trauma, and, and get ideas from them. The second thing is, as a program director and uh, with our residents, we do two things which other people probably do. We let them do a grit score and we do a, a uh, activity where we find their strengths with strength finders. And yeah. so if I know their strengths and their weaknesses, me as a program director or my faculty can actually try to help them build one or the other if they need it to help them accomplish uh, what is confronting them because it's it's unique to them. 
for sure what their stresses are. Uh, and uh, we want to be coachable as the faculty. So I think if we can offer that, that helps too. Some other comments? Um, I don't know, maybe I'll make one comment. Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, the, the first thing I would say is it's important for you guys to know that your attendings want you to succeed. And, and, and you know, the sense that, oh, somebody's out to get me, it, just to be clear, it doesn't look good for a residency program or a fellowship to not graduate the people that started in that program. So we have every desire to see you succeed and go out into, into practice and absolutely kick butt. You know, every one of us has trained, you know, department chairs now, um, uh, journal editors, members of, of the most prestigious societies. And it gives us all a tremendous amount of pride to see those folks succeed and, and know that we had a small role in, in helping them. The, the other comment I want to make uh, that, that is important is learn from the stress that you're going through during medical school, during residency, during fellowship. Because I will tell you, and I'm curious what, what my colleagues on the line here have to say, my most stressful year was my first year in practice by a lot. And the reason that was my most stressful year is because as a resident as a and as a fellow, I was stressed about kind of letting my attendings down. But my first year in practice, I would I would stress about letting my patients down a lot more. So I was waking up every morning at three o'clock in the morning, you know, thinking, "Oh my gosh, is is that wound too red? Is that hip going to dislocate?" And it, it was just a different world. So. I want to make sure you're, you kind of recognize that that's a possibility because when you do feel that stress your first year or two in practice, you shouldn't feel like it's abnormal. Um, you're the only person feeling it. I think it's actually quite common. I'm watching folks' heads nods, but I think that, that that's probably worth hearing from other folks as well. I mean, hopefully I wasn't the only person that felt that way, but, uh, but it really it was very real for me. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember, you know, coming from uh, my fellowship where joint replacement, the first joint replacement was in the recovery room at age 15. Uh, I thought that I'd come out in my first year in practice and start doing 45 minute joint replacements. And then I, and then I began to find out what two hours looks like, you know, in my first year, just because I'm double, triple checking things and that I didn't when I was being mentored by, you know, Bob Booth, Bill Hozak, you know, or, 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 or Dick Rothman. It's a very interesting time and very stressful that first year, you know, it really is. Bill? I just wrote in the, in the chat, it's the first three years, I think, are the most intense years of a doctor surgeon's life. Uh, that, those, that learning curve uh, is just intense. And, um, you're at the height of confidence at the end of your fellowship. And then the next day, you're like, you look to your left and you look to your right and you're like, okay, there's no one else here. Game on. Right. I call it, I teach my fellows, it's called fellowship deceleration injury. And, <laughs> uh, that's what it is. It's just like Bill says, you leave and you look, what just happened? And I, and I think it's actually, well, it was really well said. I've seen now people start to retire, colleagues, 
and they sit down and I've a few of them have gotten so emotional afterwards because they didn't realize they had that monkey on their back for all these years about worrying about their patients every day. So I don't even know if it's one year or three years. It might be 25 years. And, and that's the disease that we live with. But I think it's a great disease to live with. That's what, as Bill would say in the chat, makes us want to be that outstanding human being to help others. Yeah. So I'm going to um, make a comment and take three minutes of people's time. You know, as you know, the journal is completely open access. There's no article processing cost. There's no submission fees. Um, there's no charge for reprints, uh, which means we probably make no money. But the reality is, is that we do have some advertisers and there's one tonight and I'm going to play a three minute video for this. Uh, you, uh, a, a person with a New York accent is uh, narrating this. So uh, I apologize for that. I uh, hope you can see this. Here we go. Tonight's advertiser is Pacero Biosciences. And they would like you to know that you can leverage innovation in your practice. This advances care in the outpatient and clinic setting. Lucero Biosciences is committed to providing customers with innovative pain management solutions. Their mission is to provide an opioid alternative to as many patients as possible. And their core values are patient-centered, determined, passionate, innovative thinkers, trust builders, and team-driven. There are three major products that orthopedic surgeons would consider using and should use in their practice. One is Zoretta, which is extended release triamcinolone. The indication is osteoarthritis of pain of the knee. Zoretta will last between three and five months, much longer than short-acting triamcinolone. The 2021 AAOS OAE guideline update increased their recommendation to three stars out of four for long-acting intraarticular steroids. Quote, when we differentiated intraarticular steroids extended versus immediate release, our analyses demonstrated that extended release intraarticular steroids can be used over immediate release to improve patient outcomes. Another tremendous advance has been Ayurveda, which is cold therapy delivered to the side of pain that is a non-drug nerve block technology. This can give long-lasting pain relief for up to 90 days in the knee. This can be done perioperatively or in a preoperative situation for osteoarthritis of the knee. Exveril, which now has over 12 million patients treated since launch, is the only non-opioid long-acting local anesthetic. It works by infiltration and field block and lasts between 48 and 72 hours. And this is tremendous, especially in the ambulatory surgery setting. You can get safety information on Exferil, Zoretta, and Ayavera at the Pizzera Biosciences website. Thank you. All right, I uh, 
That's the best I can do. That's, that's, all, that's, all, that's all I can say. All right, now back to the big show. Um, no, I really want to thank Pacera for their support of these resident seminars. Um, they've been they've been uh, tremendous and specifically uh, isolating this group. Um, so um, I'd like to ask group another another question. Um, we talked about the job part about the um, the job divorce. What do you look on? To, what do you look for in the second job? <laughs> what do you look? You know, if the first job didn't work work out. Do you pick yourself up, go to another part of country? Do you just take a, a job in a place where you can get your boards? I mean, what do you what do you think about if the first job doesn't work out? You know, because I've been interviewing a couple of people whose jobs have not worked out. All right, what do you think, Kevin? What do you what do you look, think you look at? Well, so my life started in academics, um, right around the corner from you, as you know, in the Bronx. Yep. Loved it. Came out of fellowship with a gang of five, uh, Joe Bosco and others. Um, and unfortunately, um, my chair, or it could be a senior partner, um, I think I didn't ask those questions and didn't represent. And so after seven years, six years, I don't remember what it was, um, I had to find something different. So uh, what Bill said, you know, sometimes you can't find the job that's there. I chose a very different outside of the box path. I created my own path. So I understand that's a very different thing that's difficult to do today. But I think you have to look for going back to what Matt and well said, it is about culture. And I think I didn't investigate the culture uh, first. So I think in finding that second job, it's imperative to live it. Maybe you spend a few days in the practice where you're going, see what it's like. Maybe they do put their best face on for you, but I think you can find it out. And then you speak to the most junior person not the most senior person, but the most junior person and see, are they loving it? And are they willing for you to join? Because sometimes I think there's a bad disease in medicine because I think there are plenty of patients to go around, but there's always this protective thing that um, there's not enough patients and the most junior person will lose somehow financially. So I, I think it's important to befriend and really ask that junior person, I guess, would be a starting point. I'd love to hear from others. Bill? Well, if you want to find out about a job, there's two groups of people to talk to. Kevin's given you some of the people, great ideas, great suggestions. But the two people you want to talk to are your product representatives, the vendors from companies. They see every surgeon and they see what they do and how they act and how they behave in the operating room like no one else does, as do uh, surgical nurses. So it's the same thing. The two same, those are the people that can see behind the curtains. And we tell people to talk, you know, you have your Arthrex rep. You're going to, you know, you're thinking about a group in Kansas City. They're going to hook you up with the, the folks in Kansas City and you can talk to them because those are. Those are things and details that you cannot find out from anyone else. And um, they know the real story. And I think that that's a big part of the culture that Kevin and others are talking about 
that you might not have any clue about on how those people behave uh, in the OR. And um, as a junior person, that can be really enlightening. Okay. Yeah, you brought up a great point. Uh, it's always the behind the scenes folks that you need to get the answers from. And, you know, it's always everyone talked about the importance from the beginning. Culture is important. Sometimes people choose jobs in the beginning for the reputation and not paying attention to the culture. So that's what they have to, you know, you have to realize that what may be what led to them looking for a second job because they chose a job based on reputation of who their partners are and what they thought they would get them. And there's two big things when looking for a job, it's locate, which matters more, is it the location or job type? Kevin talked about how he created his own job after being in academics. Uh, but with your family, is location going to be more important? And then you have to define what will get you in that market. And also with looking for a second job, you always learn from your first job. So what did you learn uh, and what would you do differently? That's also some important self-reflection that needs to go into the equation. Yeah, I'm really curious uh, from uh, a number of people here. What business knowledge do you think you need to learn early in your career? What business knowledge do you need to know early in career? I'll start with Will, then I'll go to Joe, and then we'll we'll move it around. Um, I, I think a lot of that depends on the kind of practice that you're joining. So, you know, my I, I spent the first 25 years of my life working for the Cleveland Clinic. It was a salaried model, academic. I didn't have to worry about billing. I didn't, you know, I didn't have to worry about negotiating rates with insurance companies. Um, you know, my knowledge around business came, you know, from you know holding various administrative roles within the organization. But it wasn't necessary for me to be a successful orthopedic surgeon in that model. So if you choose to go to a Geisinger, to a Kaiser, to a Cleveland Clinic to a uh, Mayo Clinic, that's not going to play really a big role for you. If you're going to join a big practice, um, a big private practice, uh, I would make the effort to learn about how is overhead calculated? Um, how uh, is, there a, is there a sliding scale for reimbursement based on RVUs? Some practices, for example, you know, the first 4,000 RVUs you generate a year, you get paid a very small amount per RVU because that's covering overhead. Between 4,000 and 7,000, the number goes up. Between 7,000 and 10,000, the number goes up further. And above 10,000, you might be making $80 per RVU. So it's, it's important to understand kind of how that works because that's how you're going to get paid. Understanding ancillaries, how do ancillaries get distributed, meaning um, physical therapy, radiology, MRI, is that going to play a role for you in your compensation? Are you expected to write a check to buy into those ancillaries? Is it included in partnership? Um, so those are all kind of important things that you, that, that you need to understand. So it isn't so much um, reading the P&L and, un, and understanding cost of capital, a lot of the things that you might learn in an MBA program. It's more understanding the business of that practice. And, and I think you heard it pretty well in terms of who to talk to. If it is kind of a complex practice with, um, 
with different ways of, of compensating folks, talk to the junior members of the practice, especially those that just made partner, right? How did you make partner? Did you have to write a check for that partnership? Does the practice have a quote, goodwill buy-in, which is now, I mean, less and less common, but some practices do. They say, well, you know, the reputation of the practice is so great, you should pay something towards that. They might not call it goodwill, but they have some other term for it. So, so those are, the, I think, some of the business terms that you really want to understand. And, um, you know, again, the Cleveland Clinic doesn't have a contract. We, we would get a one-page letter that said, you are hired for one year. This is your salary. You get the same benefits as everybody else. If you're in, sign below. That was my contract for 25, every year for 25 years, I re-signed that same exact thing. Um, again, different model than going into private practice. And if you are going to go into private practice, I would strongly encourage you, have an employment attorney that understands healthcare law to look at your contract and ensure that there, there's, no, there's nothing that's going to take you by surprise later. So nothing worse than signing a contract that you didn't understand. If you understood it and it turned out not to be the right job, that's okay. That's on you. But if you didn't understand it, that's really kind of a, a, a pretty bad outcome. Joe? Yeah, I mean, all, all great points. I mean, I think coming out of residency and fellowship, um, this can be overwhelming. And, and so, yes, getting an attorney to do some of this work for you is very important. But as you grow into your career, um, and you become a better surgeon and provider of care and diagnostics, which is obviously the, the, the most important first aspect of your, of, uh, of being the best professional you can be. Um, you know, you do need to, I think, go back to, to school for some of this stuff, um, you know, working on how to be the best leader you can be, um, how to read balance sheets, um, finance, marketing, all, all the aspects of becoming you know, whether you want it or not, you, you as a resident and fellow and then young attending become a middle career attending who sometimes gets thrown into leadership. And you want to have some of the skill sets and tools from people who can educate you on it formally sometimes. So going back to school is, is, is something that, you know, I, I did it at an older age and I, I really enjoyed it because I'd had some time to do some things and, and have an apprenticeship model of, of working with somebody, but it wasn't enough. I, I needed, I needed more. I needed some more formal uh, surroundings around it to really help me understand things better. Um, and, you know, force me to, to read things and, and, and have some tests to take and, and make sure I, I understood the content so I could become better at it. Cause all these skill sets need practice. I mean, they're, you know, you know, they're all just like Kevin was saying in the beginning, they're all individual skill sets, surgical skill, bedside manner, knowledge-based research method, writing papers, public speaking, administrative leadership, they don't come mostly naturally. Very few of us have one of those skills naturally, if we're lucky. So they all need education and mentorship. And, and sometimes you need it formally if you don't have necessarily all the mentors around you that you need. Matt, Matt Barber, raise your hand. Yeah, yeah I would. Uh, I wanted to echo that from what Will said and, uh, and Joe and, and piggyback to what part of what Joe said earlier. How do you get in? How do you get out? And how do you get paid? So figure out what is that what does that track to partnership look like? 
How do you get back out of it if this doesn't work? Uh, is there a non-compete involved? How do you get paid while you're there? What's the compensation model? If you're in an employed deal with a hospital and it's RVU based, what's their ability to disallow RVUs or to bundle them in with something else? You really need to understand that. Um, and exactly what they said, like your friend who knows a lawyer and getting them to look over it and say, oh yeah, that looks standard is not cool. Like whatever is not uh, in print, uh, it, it doesn't exist. And whatever you signed on is what you signed on. So you need to, you need to go through that red line and ask for whatever you wanted. And, you know, back even to what Lisa said, this whole process takes a lot of self-reflection. You're trying to figure out what's important to you in life, personally and professionally. And every part of that, where you live, the type of practice you're in, all of those affect you and affect your life. But give yourself some grace, too, because that's all going to change. And what was a fit for you starting out might not be a fit in 10 years or 15 years. Um, and just like with the business, we can all strive to understand this, but the business model in healthcare just flips all the time. I mean, you and I talked, I mean, my mentor was in like a, a four-man group and they had a helicopter. Like, you know... That's not happening in 2023. Right. I get that. I get that. I, I'd like to uh, echo uh, what Joe said about uh, getting education there. In, in our department, um, if attending's been there three years, we send any young attending to the Harvard Managing Healthcare Delivery course, which is a nine-month course, uh, three weeks on campus in four months of, uh, sorry, eight months of uh, of offsite learning. Uh, and I've already sent six attendings to, the, to this course to bring them up to speed as to what the healthcare environment looks like. Um, and so, and, and the department actually pays for that. Um, I see one of my attendings on here probably taking notes saying, I didn't know that, you know? Yeah. But we'll, 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 uh, we'll rectify that if you didn't know it. Um, any other comments? Because we're going to, what I'd like to do is uh, just go around the horn. We have five minutes left and some closing comments, maybe include, including your comments. You know, wh what makes for a good medical student who makes for a good resident, who makes for a good fellow, who makes for a good orthopedic surgeon? You know, just maybe a couple, a little summary about that. And I, I know everyone's thinking about that question right now. But, so I'll start with Lisa. Quickly, quick. What? I would say embracing oh, change. Oh, okay. Go, Joe. I, I would say embracing change because I can tell you that the only constant is change and you have to adapt. Uh, healthcare is obviously always changing. Your life's always changing and, and, and learning to adapt uh, is really important. Great. Uh, Lisa now? Uh, I The tips I have, the three things I'll say are whether you're a medical student into residency, residents into fellows, fellows into a job or moving jobs. Great to uh, succeed. You must integrate well. You must integrate seamlessly and rapidly. Weave into the team of the, the fabric. You know, weave into the fabric of the whole team. And to be great, you must be quietly compulsive. That goes along with Bill's talking about lifelong learning. 
And to be great, you must also provide added value. No matter what level you are, you can provide added value. You can provide added value to those around you uh, and make your teachers better teachers and clinicians by asking questions and by being prepared. And you wanna be an active and thoughtful learner. So integrate well, be compulsive and provide added value. All right, uh, Bill, maybe some comment, final comments. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the key element that I try to instill in people is to uh, have self-awareness. If you have self-awareness, uh, you can hopefully, like when we talk about 360 evaluations, my, my, what I tell people is you shouldn't need a 360 evaluation. You should be able to come into my office or into any of your mentor's office and give a, a 360 and likewise in reverse. So try, and if you don't have self-awareness, then get a coach to help you because there's nothing that's going to get you into or out of trouble better than if you have that one, uh, one facet in your life. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I think, um, I think you have to remember first and foremost, that as, as doctors, we are given what I would consider to be the highest honor ever in that patients are, cho are literally choosing to put their lives in our hands. And given that, you have to recognize that to some degree, you lose the right to be selfish as a doctor. You're, you've got to recognize the value that uh, and, and the honor that people are giving you. So again, getting that call at two o'clock in the morning for a hip fracture, and you're like, well, I'm not gonna operate on it tonight. Do I really, you know, just kind of put the patient to bed, we'll take care of it. You know, you gotta wonder, is that how you'd want your grandparent taken care of, right? I mean, obviously you're probably not gonna get up for a straightforward hip fracture in the middle of the night, but do everything you can to make sure that patient is comfortable. They're getting the best care. Um, the attention to detail is extremely, extremely important that, uh, that you always keep that in mind. I would tell um, uh, our, our caregivers at the Cleveland Clinic would, when I was uh, with Cleveland Clinic in Florida, tell them, you know, outside of orthopedics, obviously we're doing a lot of cancer surgery and transplant surgery and whatnot. Tell folks, look, there are patients walking through our doors. Literally, this is the worst day of their lives. And you have the opportunity to make it a little bit better. So recognize that responsibility and that opportunity. Um, don't be selfish and think about the patient. Great, we have uh, Matt and then Kevin to finish up, I think. When I was an intern, Ira, I think I made like in the 10th percentile on the in-training exam and my chairman sat me down and was like, look, man, you got like five years to, to master orthopedics and to learn everything that you can here. Um, so, so get to work. Um, so I, I would say, soak it up, just like learn everything you can. Uh, and that, you know, I, I maybe should have gotten the lesson sooner. I mean, I, I did obviously as a medical student, but when you're a med student resident fellow, take that time, learn. I mean, as everybody said, you've got somebody there teaching you and supervising you. Um, the, the level of care that, that the faculty here have shown and what they do to try to help their, their residents and fellows succeed and, and take care of them is incredible. So avail yourself of that, learn everything that you can. 
and just ask a million questions um, to them, to everybody you're around. And, and so that then flows over to where you're going to do your residency, where you're going to do your fellowship, to jobs you're looking at. Just talk to people and keep asking because you'll see the common themes. You'll see what's standard, what's not, what fits with you, what's that that cultural fit, and just reach out. I mean, you, you've got, you know, right here, I mean, incredible access. All these surgeons, all these folks are on LinkedIn and social media, a lot of them, um, and are, are accessible, and you can reach out and ask questions. So do that. Kevin Plancher, bring us home. I'm not going to get too religious, but we were given two ears and one mouth. And therefore, don't let technology control your life. I am going to get up every night for my patients. It's never about me. I'm going to be old school. It's about my patient. Rephrasing it that Dr. Brasum said, you want to be good? That's great. You want to be amazing? You're going to have to give of yourself and it's going to hurt. And so you have to share. We deal in human beings. And therefore, as I close it out, I say to my colleagues with their screens that are off, turn on your screens. I want to see your face. I want to know who you are. I'm sorry. I'm going to be the elephant in the room. And so I can't wait to meet each of you that we all share together because I will only learn from all of you. And I need all of you because I am getting old. And that's my <laughs> Well, I'd like to just say a couple of final words. Big thank you and a great honor to be with this faculty tonight. Uh, these are people I look up to on a regular basis. We're going to do two things. This will be uh, edited and recorded and back on the site. We're also going to transcribe this because I think this was some great advice. And we're going to produce this as a sort of a editorial kind of uh, uh, article on Joey. But I want to thank everybody and thank the faculty very much. Um, and I'll just say good night and let everyone go back to what they're doing.